Brilliant. Hello, everybody. Great. I wonder what the kindest thing that anybody ever, ever did for you was. What's the kindest thing? Just turn to the person next to you, and just whatever comes to the top of your head. What's the ki- kindest thing anybody ever did for you? Just something that comes to your mind. What is the kindest thing that anybody ever did for you? Anybody brave enough to shout one out for me? What was the kindest thing anyone ever did for you? Anyone want to shout it out? I only thought of this this morning. Go on, Tom. So they get, he gave you work. Amazing. Brilliant. That's amazing. Anybody else? Yep, yeah, go for it. How lovely. So someone let you have the house for a week. That's amazing. I mean, I was thinking about this for myself. I think the kindest thing that's ever happened to me is someone's given me a car. Um, maybe two or three. But actually, it's a trick question. Because <laughs> really, the kindest thing anybody ever did for me was introduce me to Jesus. Which is a cheesy, but, but good answer. Um, and this book that we've been studying, Ruth, and if you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn it up, because we're going to read Ruth chapter 4 in a minute. Um, this book that we've been studying is just... Um, that's what I'm looking for, it's all right. Um, is all about kindness and the kindness of God. And in a minute, Judy's going to read us chapter 4. But last week, you may remember, if you've been following this story, we kind of left the story on a cliffhanger last week. It was an EastEnders do, 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 do moment. Um, so just to briefly recap for the benefit of anybody who's missed out, um, I'm sorry, I don't have a, a you know, really slickly to get edited together video that says last week on Ruth or previously. Um, in chapter 1 of Ruth, the Jewish widow Naomi returns from Moab where she'd been with her husband and both her husband and her two sons had died. She comes back with her daughter-in-law Ruth, who is also widowed. And now, back in Israel, is a foreigner in a strange land. Naomi is bitter. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me, call me Mara, which means bitter. God has not... God has not been very kind to me, is what she says. Effectively, she's got no future, she's got no income, she's got no heir. Her family is effectively going to die out. In the second chapter, we read about how Ruth, the uh, dutiful and kind daughter-in-law, goes out and starts doing what they call gleaning, gleaning in the fields, which means basically collecting up the bits of grain that are left there for the poor, and how she meets Boaz, who's this incredibly kind farmer and landowner, and he makes sure that she's really well treated. And he makes sure that she has access to plenty of grain. He says, I've heard about you. I've heard about the way that you honoured your mother-in-law. I've heard about your nature, your character. And as she gets home and tells this story to Naomi, Naomi realises that this guy Boaz is actually in her extended family. That he is one of her kinsman redeemers. And we've been introduced to that phrase, kinsman redeemer, which basically means a family member who has either the duty or the privilege to help in a situation like this, where there is a widow and where um, there are some questions over the land. And then last week, uh, we read, and I was speaking to you last week, about how under Naomi's instruction, Ruth takes a bold step and goes off at night to meet with and to see Boaz in order to basically propose marriage to him. And she says to him, when he wakes up in the night and he finds her effectively in his bed, I think, um, she says... I want you to spread your wings over me, since you are our kinsman redeemer. It's a bold move. She makes herself incredibly vulnerable in all sorts of different ways. And she does it on behalf of Naomi, her mother-in-law. 
Um, but that's what she does. She takes this bold step. And Boaz, who is clearly in love with her, for the incredible character and generosity and kindness and purity that she shows, of course wants to, uh, wants to do the right thing. And, and he proves to be incredibly honourable. He wants to say yes and marry her straight away, but he does flag up there's an issue. There's a, a sort of legal issue, um, which is, or certainly customary issue, if not actually law, which is that there is another family member, and he's never named in this story, there is another possible kinsman redeemer, someone who is closer in the family line than Boaz is, and effectively he has first refusal on both the land and on Ruth's hand in marriage. So you can see Boaz's kind of brain working this thing out, how are we going to do this? So he sort of says, yes, I would love to, I will make sure that you are looked after. You know, he, he responds to her, her, um, her invitation. Um, but he says, but before I do that, I've got to sort some things out. And he sends Ruth back to Naomi with extra grain so that she doesn't return home empty-handed. And Judith, why don't you come up and uh, read. And if you've got chapter 4, we're going to read through the whole of chapter 4. And, uh, and then we're going to, this is the end of this story. We're going to enjoy the last bit. Judy's going to read it to us. I think from the NIV. So Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. When the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, Boaz called out to him, Come over here, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I felt that I should speak to you about it, so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it from you. The man replied, All right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz told him, Of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way, she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. In those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. Then Boaz said to the leaders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Limelech, Kilian, and Marlon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Marlon, to be my wife. 
This way, she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Then the leaders and all the people standing there replied, We are witnesses coming Sorry, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is now coming to, into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you be great in Ephrathath, and may witnesses, sorry, and may, may famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of your ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. So Boaz married Ruth and took her home to live with him. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. And the women in the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, with, he has given you a family redeemer today. May he be famous in Israel. May this child restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law, who loves you so much, and who has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took care of the baby and cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. This is the family line, beginning with their ancestor Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. Thank you. Thanks, Judy. Thank you. And family lines are really important. And you can see at the end kind of what legitimizes this story even more is how, the, how it brings it into the line, the family line of David, which is obviously key in Israel's history. We'll talk a bit more of that, that in a minute. Just to reflect on the story with a couple of key images, and um, then I want to just make draw three points out of it um, that are just things for us to learn and, and reflect on as we as we kind of think about the whole of this story this is obviously the concluding chapter and one of these key images is this image of Boaz and this other kinsman redeemer who is not named as I said you see he follows through Boaz on his promise to redeem Ruth he makes sure that he complies with all the accepted customs I think he's interestingly the way the story is told he's pretty shrewd about the way he does it isn't he I mean, he doesn't talk about Ruth first, he talks about the land first. So he, he goes to this guy and he says, look, without really letting on about his own feelings, he says, look, are you going to buy this land for this widow? It's a, business, it's a fairly straightforward business transaction. It's, it's kind of your right, it's kind of your duty to look after her and do this. 
To which the kinsman redeemer's initial answer is yes. Yes, I'll do that. What's he actually agreeing to, this guy? Or what does he think he's agreeing to? Well, he's weighing up between the cost of whether he, whether he can do his duty, the duty that's kind of expected of him, against what it's going to cost him and his family. So initially, when he says yes, he's thinking, well, okay, I'm going to have to pay some money out to buy this land, but at worst, it'll stay in my, fa- well, it'll stay in my family then, and um, if there were any heirs, then whenever the jubilee would come round, which would be every 50 years, and we don't know when that is, they would have to go, the land would revert back to the original family. But as he's looking at this situation, he's saying, well, there aren't likely to be any heirs, so therefore I'm gonna co- it's going to cost me, but it's a fairly safe bet that I'm going to get to keep the land in my family. Because Naomi's not going to have any more children. There are no other heirs. And so the family line will, will die out. So this guy gets to keep the land, and he gets to keep the land in his own family. And he's totally within his rights to do that. I don't really understand all their customs and why, why but that, he's certainly within his rights to do that. On the surface, it looks like a good deal, so he says yes. And then Boaz comes in with this kind of killer punch, doesn't he? In business terms. <laughs> um, he says, well, there's this, there, actually, there's an extra dimension to this. And the extra dimension is Ruth, the Moabite widowed daughter-in-law. She's part of the deal. I'm sorry, ladies, these were different times culturally. Okay. <laughs> She can still have children, and so therefore, there's an expectation on this kinsman redeemer to have children with her so that there will be an heir who's produced. And that will continue the family line. And the kinsman redeemer, as soon as he realizes this, says, no, that's not going to work for me because that's going to interfere with my own children's inheritance. I'm out. (laughs) I'm out. Leaving Boaz free to go ahead with his plan and both redeem the land and marry Ruth. And the deal is sealed with this kind of whole sandal transaction, which is even, it's, it's even explained in the text what the custom, the custom is this. Um, and so Boaz makes this public declaration in verse 9, where he says, Today you are witnesses that I have bought Naomi, from Naomi, sorry, all the property, and I have acquired Ruth as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property and so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. And today... You are witnesses. And this is our happy ending slide. Oh, we all have a happy ending, don't we? The story reaches its natural conclusion. And these two marry and they have a son. The son's name is Obed. And as we heard, Obed becomes the father of Jesse, who in turn becomes the father of David, who is one of Israel's greatest kings. And Naomi, who initially returned from her homeland bitter and empty is now redeemed and blessed. Her life is renewed, it says, and her happiness in her old age is, well, it's virtually guaranteed. And there's this blessing that the the women say to her in in verse 14. The women say, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. This is the Lord's work, they're saying to Naomi. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For you have this daughter-in-law who loves you and who's better than seven sons. And don't you think that this story shows how Ruth had just extraordinary kindness in sticking with Naomi as she returned to Israel? This is Ruth who left her family and gave up the chance of remarrying one of her own people 
who showed incredibly practical kindness and acted out, extreme, out of extreme love for her mother-in-law, going and working in the fields, making herself vulnerable, maintained her purity, when in Boaz's words back in chapter 2, she could have pursued any one of the younger men in the village, who on the instructions of Naomi, with her encouragement, boldly went to Boaz at night, made herself incredibly vulnerable in so many ways just to ask him to marry her. And now this girl Ruth is blessed as a wife and a mother, and not just any old wife and mother, but actually a wife and mother in the line of David, which, as you may or may not know, is actually in the line of Jesus himself. If you turn to Matthew chapter 1, it's very small there, but I've picked out the big bit, verse 5 and 6. There's a whole list of the genealogy of Jesus. And there's Ruth right in there in verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse the father of David. And on it goes all the way down to Jesus. <laughs> Just as an aside, I do love that list because there are three women mentioned by name, four, men, four women mentioned altogether, all of whom, if you look at their story, okay, in the light of the kind of Hebrew law, you'd probably raise your eyebrows quite a lot and say, I'm not sure if you'd actually pick these guys out as being ancestors of the Messiah. I mean, Tamar is in there, who, and she, I don't know if you know the story, but she seduced her father-in-law, Judah. Uh, Rahab, who's actually Boaz's mother, started life as a prostitute, and here's Ruth, an outsider and a widow. And yet, isn't it wonderful, the kindness of God, how he brings these people in and makes them part of his story. And that is the thing that God is in the business of doing this is in the business of bringing us into his story. All of this shows the kind of character of God. He cares about people who don't fit. Or people who don't feel that they fit. People who don't feel that they belong. People who think, I've just messed up too much to be accepted by God. People who have been marginalized or excluded. God takes the ordinary, messed up, everyday people, transforms them, partners with them. And uses them to further his kingdom, works with them to further his kingdom, be part of his story. His story of rescuing and redeeming the world. Isn't that an incredible thing? Come on, get a bit more excited, people. So look, here's the whole story of Ruth, as somebody, uh, as somebody drew it out. And I just want to make three points and reflect on three points that you can see through this whole story. And I think every one of them is relevant for us in our lives today. And the first point is this, very simply, that God is in every moment of this story. You can see a kind of life of prayer shining through. I'm just going to give you four or five examples that we read from right through. In chapter 1, verse 8, Naomi sends her daughters, she tries to send Ruth and Orpah home to their people. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So Naomi is blessing them. There's God shining through in the moment, a prayer at every moment. In chapter 2 and verse 4, Boaz greets his workers in the morning. He says to the workers, it says in 2 verse 4, he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answer back, the Lord bless you. Try that with your boss tomorrow morning and see what happens. Or if you are the boss, try that with your, Rafe, try that with your tools. <laughs> the Lord be with you. Um, in chapter 2, verse 12, when Boaz welcomes Ruth to glean in the fields, he prays over her, says this blessing over her, the Lord repay you 
for what you've done, and a full reward will be given to you by him, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 2.20, Ruth goes home to Naomi. Naomi says, and she hears about Boaz, and she says, oh, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. 3, chapter 10, sorry, 3, yeah, chapter 3, verse 10, Ruth has asked Boaz to marry her, and he says to her, part of his response is, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first, etc., etc. And then 4.11, the witnesses that we've just read about this morning. All of these witnesses praying this blessing on Boaz and Ruth's marriage. May the Lord make, the, make this woman who is coming to your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be blessed and the offspring that the Lord gives you be blessed. At every stage of this story, oh, and we've already mentioned, by the way, the blessing that the women give to Naomi. At every stage of this story, you can see this kind of deep faith in God coming through. A deep spirituality in the community. And th- this author has written this story from this standpoint to show that God is in every aspect of life. Here's a quote from one of the commentators a guy called um, David Atkinson, he says this, every aspect of life, from misery to joy, from the routine to the extraordinary, daily work and social intercourse, as well as the very private moments, are lived in the faith that God is there and God cares. Not only so, but human actions, as we have seen themselves, point to the character of God. One of the things that comes through every fragment of this story is that God is in every moment of our lives. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to believe that only God is in some moments of our lives, that he only cares about certain aspects. Some of us find it very easy to pray or worship or connect with God or relate with God when things are going well. But as soon as things start to take a downturn, times and times become tough, the story is a different story. Maybe, and I'm, I'm just speaking from my own experience here, and maybe one or two people I've spoken to, but when we feel stressed or when we start to feel like tough things are happening, sometimes our response is to withdraw from people and withdraw from God. We go into ourselves and we start believing things that just aren't true. You know, I could, I could have a very stressful or busy time I don't get any peace or space to myself, or if someone's criticised me, I could quite easily go into this whole, I'm so rubbish. I just kind of forget what God says about me. Maybe you're one of those people. On the other hand, you might go the other way. Maybe we're really good at turning to God in the tough times. Maybe we're really good at coming to him in the tough times, but then when things go well, we just kind of forget to thank and honour and bless and worship him. Because things are so good and we, we don't, need, don't feel we need to pray as much because we're feeling so good about things. Is anybody like that? Or is it just me? I'm just going to be absolutely honest here and say I can be like both of those things. I can be like both of these things. I, I can write in my journal. If I were to go through my journal and read, mostly it's when things aren't going well. You know? I tend to just get on with things. If I'm not careful, without stopping to answer, I haven't really got all this sorted out yet. I kind of get onto a kind of cycle of getting stressed, forgetting I'm a Christian, feeling rubbish, then remembering that God cares, writing in my journal, praying and worshipping, choosing to trust him through the difficult times, sensing his presence, knowing he's with me, feeling more encouraged, and then as things get better, I start cracking on with life and forget to pray again until 
things get stressful again. Is it just me? Can anybody relate to this? Thank goodness for that. Okay. And the good news is for me, I do genuinely feel that these cycles generally are shorter than they used to be. Which is, which is good. The really funny part, isn't it? And it's kind of reassuring and funny, is that I can just imagine God having a little smile to himself. Because he knows it all anyway. I, can't, I, can't, I mean, he's just so... I can imagine him just kind of like, yeah, <laughs> when's he going to get it, you know? When's he going to learn? But in kindness, not in condemnation, just in kindness. So if you are struggling with this stuff, why not spend some time just meditating? I mean, I haven't got time to go there now, really, but have a look at Psalm 139, for example. The first eight verses of Psalm 139. You've searched me. And you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before words on my tongue, you know it. You hem me in at the front and in the back, behind and before. You lay your hand on me. Can't go anywhere to get away from your presence, God. And the truth is that as we see through this story of Ruth, God is in every moment. Every moment. Have a think about that. Which moments this week were you not aware that God was in? And could you have done with knowing about? What moments, what moments have you got coming up this week? Where you just need to know that God is there. He's ready to intervene. His heart is to rescue and redeem. The truth is he doesn't often act uninvited. Sometimes he does. But most often he waits for the invitation. It's a bit like me and my kids. My kids shout at me sometimes, Dad, the computer's broken. I'm like, and? <laughs> you know, Dad, such and such. Is there a question? <laughs> Dad, would you help me with this? Because it's not that I'm trying to be horrible. I just want relationship with them. So if they want to come and engage me in relationship, I love to try and fix anything I can. I can't always fix it, but... Like I said last week, often it's up to us to take a proactive step in our relationship with God and work with him and not just expect him to come. So that's really my first point, that God is in every moment. My second point is just about God's incredible kindness. Lamentations chapter 3, it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And today, you'll notice from today's chapter... I think it's really interesting in this story. Think about the two characters of this kinsman redeemer, the, the unnamed one, and Boaz. Okay, you've got these two guys, two possible redeemers, family members. This kinsman redeemer was prepared to act in this situation. He was prepared to act realistically probably out of duty. It was his duty to do that. And he would have done that. However, Boaz's motivation goes so far beyond duty, doesn't it? Boaz is prepared to act out of love. And isn't that just like God? That he's not just interested in doing his duty, he wants to go further and act out of love. Think back to the start of the story as a kind of mirror. It's very clever the way this story is written about Ruth and the other sister-in-law, Orpah, who we don't hear much about. Again, Naomi blesses her both, both daughters to go back and kind of start again. She says, you don't need to stay with me. You're not 
tied to me. I release you of any responsibilities that you may feel you have. Go back to your families and make a new life for yourself. And Orpah is totally within her rights to do that. And yet contrast her character with Ruth, who goes above and beyond. Above and beyond. In both of these cases, both Ruth and Boaz go above and beyond what's naturally and expected of them and demonstrate this incredible kindness. And the Hebrew term for this is hesed. Hesed, that's the word that's used. It occurs three times in this story. It's really difficult to translate because no English, single English word captures its meaning. Translators use words like kindness or loving kindness or mercy or loyalty. Uh, one thing I read said that loyal love was the, perhaps the closest way of translating it. But hesed is one of the richest and most powerful Hebrew words in the Old Testament because it reflects the loyal love that the people, people who that people committed to God of the Bible should have for one another. God's people need to have this kind of love for one another because that's the kind of love that God has for them. It's not primarily a mood or a feeling. It's something you do. There's one for the marriage course. (laughs) A love that demonstrates practically not just what we feel. Naomi uses this word of Ruth in chapter 1. This is the kindness that Ruth shows to Naomi. Naomi uses this word of Boaz in chapter 2 to explain his lavish kindness. And Boaz uses the word of Ruth in chapter 3. The Lord bless you, my daughter, this kindness that you've showed me. This is the word he's using. It's a really rich and deep word that for me just describes the amazing and incredible love that God has for his people and that his people have for one another. And isn't it true? We know that God is a kind God. Let me read you an email that I got, we got last week. Um, I don't think she's here, but a friend of ours, Sarah Evans, who used to be part of this church and came back a few months ago. She, just the background to this was she's had drug-resistant glaucoma followed by an operation that resulted in hypotony and several choroidal effusions. I don't know what that means, but it basically means she couldn't see very well. She had a real problem in her eyes. This is the email she wrote. Thank you for praying for my eye when we visited Wimvin last week. I thought to let you know that the pressure in my eye when I saw the doctor today was normal, brackets, without medication, for the first time in over 18 months. When I... When I, when I saw you, I had no pressure in the eye and the vision wasn't much more than counting fingers as so much fluid was collecting in the wrong bits. On the following Monday, the doctors got a pressure reading for the first time and now my vision is almost back to normal. I'm sure that once the dilating drops have worn off, it will be normal. Just a new prescription for my glasses. Thank you for praying. Thank you, God, for sorting out my eye. Not only did he sort it out, but he gave me great peace. Whilst I couldn't see all the... Th- how all the things that would be working for his glory and I could trust his wisdom and love. It's lovely seeing again though. Isn't that great? The kindness of God. Sue was just telling me how just this week at house group they prayed for her, her back was healed and her leg grew. The kindness of God. There for all to see. There for all to see. I'll come to that in a minute. And when we live out this kindness, we reflect his character. And the truth is that sadly not everyone, the church hasn't done a great job of doing that in the past. 
you know, I, I, I found this picture and I was going to use it and then I thought I won't and now I think I will. I haven't got the picture, I'm going to read it to you. It's a notice, here's a warning, it's got a swear word in it, okay. Um, cover your ears if you've got little ones. Um, it's just a notice that a church puts up outside their, outside, their, uh, outside their building. It said, if you think, no, it said, if you have been told that God is some kind of punishing, capricious and angry bastard with a killer surveillance system who is basically always disappointed with you for being a human, then you've been lied to. And the church has failed you and we are so sorry. I love that. I thought that was really powerful because the truth is we haven't always demonstrated the kindness of God, have we? God's people don't always display it. I was really interested to read this week that um, the author Max Licardo has got involved in American politics. And most people I know with any brain stay right out of American politics. <laughs> but he wrote a blog in which he basically said, um, he said, I wouldn't comment on Donald Trump at all, other than the fact that he claims to be a Christian. This is not Christian. That's all he's saying. He got shared and retweeted and all sorts of stuff. Because sometimes what the church does or says or what's said or done in the name of God is not the kindness of God. And when you were given your word about us shining up like that, that's part of what, we, what God is standing up and shining. That's part of what God is calling us to. When we live out our faith as scattered servants, we're sharing the kindness of God with one another. This is how Mother Teresa put it. Let no one ever come to you without leaving better and happier. Be the living expression of God's kindness. Kindness in your face, in your eyes, and in your smile. How are we doing with that today? How are we doing with that today? And just lastly, my last point is that there's a verse in the Bible that says that kindness leads to repentance. Repentance is the word that we use when we say we want to accept and acknowledge the fact that we've messed up, that we've sinned, that we've not made a good that we've not done a good job of this and that we need to come back to Jesus. I've got this book, I think I've mentioned this before. Um, I read with my little one sometimes, and it's called the Jesus Storyteller Bible. And all the way through the Old Testament, there's a little subtitle and it says, Every story whispers his name. And every story that you read through the Old Testament, it tells the story, and then it kind of has this little last sentence that says that, that points forward to Jesus. Every story whispers his name. And the story of Ruth, well, it doesn't whisper the name of Jesus, it pretty much shouts it, doesn't it? This story points forward to Jesus, who is the ultimate kinsman redeemer, who doesn't just rescue one family, he rescues the whole world. Here's the definition of the word redeem. This is my third point, Jesus, kinsman redeemer. It says to compensate for the faults or the bad aspects of it says to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment. That's what a redeemer does and that's what the gospel is. That Jesus does this for each and every one of us. Every person who comes to him, he deals with our sin and he exchanges it for his life. And the, probably the simplest way to explain that is uh, using these things handily. Andy, just stand up and show everyone your t-shirt, will you? I just noticed that Andy got this four points t-shirt on today. And look, you see, I've got that. I'm there too. <laughs> I've, got, I've got mine on my, little, uh, on my little wrist thing here. But anyway, here it is. And I don't know if you've seen these before. It's just some pictures and a very, very simple way of explaining what it is exactly that God has done for us. 
that Jesus did. And the first one, the heart says, God loves me. He created me as he created the whole world. God is a God of love. And the second point is that the cross means that I have sinned. I've sinned. I've messed up. Just like all humans, I've taken my free will that God gave me and decided to throw it back in his face, reject his plan and do life my way. And the third point is that Jesus died for me on the cross to pay the ultimate price for my sin and to be my kinsman redeemer. And that presents me with a question. What am I going to do about that? Am I going to ignore it or am I going to accept it? Am I going to ignore the free gift, the offer of life that Jesus gives, or am I going to choose to accept in my life and give him my yes, knowing that he will bring hope and love and kindness, everything that he offers? And if you're here today and that's an offer that you'd like to take up, then in just a couple of minutes I'm going to pray and I'd love you to pray with me. I'd love us to do that. Just before I do that, I just want to show you a picture because on Thursday evening, this last Thursday evening, we celebrated two people, I don't think they're here today, but Barry and Julia, who have made this decision for themselves, been on this journey, and who got baptised here on Thursday night in a little service that we did with some people. So thank you for those of you who came to that. And they just told their story, and I won't go into details, they were a little bit nervous to do it on a big setting like this. But we just had a wonderful evening, we prayed for them and... And this was their story of how they had accepted Jesus and begun to grow in their life with him. And today is a really good day to get to know your Redeemer. It's a really good day to get to know the one who died for you. And if you know him already, then that's wonderful. Worship and celebrate him. Listen for his voice. See what it is he's saying. See what he wants you to do. Why don't we stand together? We've just got a couple of minutes and we're going to just invite the Holy Spirit. He's here already, of course. It may be that you want to respond. So here's what we're going to do. In a minute, the guys are going to play. There'll be an opportunity to come forward and receive prayer if you'd like to. But we'll just wait for a minute or two. And also I'm going to pray that prayer, a prayer of accepting Jesus. And if that's, that's something you want to do for the first time, or for the first time in a long time, or just today, doesn't matter. And maybe you'll pray that prayer with me. As so we listen to his Holy Spirit's voice and we allow him to come and just speak his words to us. So Father, we push into you. We open our hearts. We bless you. Thank you for your incredible redeeming love. We thank you for this story that just shows the kindness and the character of our God. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us right now. We welcome you. We welcome you into our hearts today. Welcome you, Holy Spirit. And even just as I look around, I see some of you, I see many, many of you just under the... Just the Holy Spirit's resting on you. And some of you, I know your story and I know that this is really genuine. This is, this is part of what God has done and is doing in your lives. I don't know everybody's story here, but I know some of them. 
whatever God is doing, just accept him in your heart and accept what he wants to say and do with you. And Spirit, we bless you for your presence and we bless you for your love and your gentleness. And we pray for more of you now. And for those who really need an encounter with you, may they be blessed with that now. And I'm just going to pray that prayer. Very simple, pray it under your breath if you want to join me. Or out loud if you really want. Or in your head. But, Father God, thank you that you died for me. Thank you that you redeemed my life. That you rescued me, paid the price for my sin. And that nothing can get in the way of your love for me. Father God, I confess my sins. I bring them to your cross. I ask you to forgive me. Pray that you would heal me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, I pray. So that I can live the life that you're calling me to live. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, I would absolutely love to chat to you today. You don't have to make a big deal of it, but just come and grab me afterwards, either down here or over by the connect desk. But if you want to receive from the Lord, if you want to encounter his presence again today, if you want to respond to anything you've heard this morning, now is a great time. Why don't you just come forward? Why don't you just come? And also, um, John and Jules, why don't you come as well on? You come on this side and we're going to pray. You want to come and pray for John and Jules if you know them and you'll just come and pray and bless them. Come and do that. But if you want to receive from the Lord, let's have one or two church folks come as well. Come on, there's more of you. That's okay. Just, just come and be prepared to pray. For some guys and some girls, thank you for your presence, Lord.